Okay, so uh, we're on page 62 in our notes, <clears throat> and we are talking about chapter uh, six of Romans. Um, we're on the general topic of sanctification, and uh, we're looking at chapter six, verses one through 23. And we are talking a lot about union with Christ because uh, this next section says union with Christ is incompatible with a life of sin. And Paul says, we've been united with Christ and we experience certain benefits. And we, I gave this definition from Grudem before when we'd say union with Christ means we're in Christ. That's the expression we see over and over in, in the New Testament. Paul says, believers are in Christ, we're in Christ. And so union with Christ, is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers and Christ through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. So all the benefits of salvation come through us because we are in Christ. These relationships include the fact we're in Christ, Christ is in us, we are like Christ, and we are with Christ. Now the benefits that we have mainly been talking about in this class are justification and sanctification. Those are kind of the twin benefits and the two sort of major benefits that uh, Romans talks about and are very important in our Christian lives. Justification that we can distinguish. We must distinguish between justification, which is a non-experiential legal judicial act of God and sanctification, <clears throat> which is an experiential. We are being made righteous. And sanctification, of course, includes uh, three aspects that we talked about. And we're talking here in chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 14, about our death to sin. <clears throat> so Paul wants to explain what happened to us when we got saved. And we have various expressions. Sometimes we say we're born again, we're regenerated, we're justified. <clears throat> we're redeemed, all these terms. We've been reconciled to God. And Paul uh, wants to emphasize the fact that there was a break with sin that was so important when we got saved, that as unsafe people, <clears throat> we were dominated by sin. We were not able not to sin. This expression goes back to Augustine. You've heard Pastor Ken, he's taught on this, not able not to sin. And uh, But once we are Christians, we are able not to sin. I'm not saying we, we're sinless, but we're able not to sin. And so the way he wants to explain that, he says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain that as a death to sin through union with Christ. That is, when we trusted Christ, we became identified with him in his death and resurrection. And so <clears throat> we had a question, and, uh, you know, shall we continue in sin, Paul says, because that was brought up by what happened, he said, in chapter 4, where he said, you know, where, uh, chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. And Paul says, well, should we continue in sin so that God can display his grace more? And he says, no, no, we can't. <clears throat> We're not able to because God's changed us. He's broken the power of sin. We died to sin through union with Christ. <clears throat> and he explains that union with Christ means death to sin. And then union with Christ means participation in new life. We saw last time. And now we're ready to look at the last point here. Union with Christ is compatible, incompatible with a life of sin. Union with Christ is not incompatible with sin. <laughs> we do sin, but it's incompatible with a lifestyle of sin, with a continuation of lifestyle where one has no concern for righteousness and holiness. So I say here uh, under this expression, verses 12 through 14, while introducing a new focus on the imperative, that's the command, that is don't yield yourselves to sin, don't give in to sin. While introducing a new focus on the imperative, the command not to give in to sin, 
belong with verses 1 through 11 as the specific and practical conclusion to the indicative, <clears throat> that's the fact, what God has done, the indicative of God's work for us in and with Christ. Freedom from, Lord, from, from sin's lordship, that we'll see in verse 14, freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus, is to be realized in daily experience. The truth of definitive sanctification is now to be worked out in our lives. So remember that chart we had? <clears throat> we said that in the Bible, that the Bible speaks of sanctification in three phases. We have been sanctified, we are being sanctified, and we will be sanctified. And that past sanctification is that break with sin that I'm talking about. That's instantaneous. It's definitive. It's once and for all. Where the power of sin is broken, we are given a new capacity, or what we sometimes say, a new nature. And now we can <clears throat> live lives that are pleasing to Christ, to God. But we're concerned about now this present progressive sanctification, this lifelong spiritual maturity, growth in grace and holiness. I say here, now we must become what we are. In justification, we have a perfect righteousness, a perfect legal standing of righteousness. Now we are to become what we are. Remember that phrase in Ephesians, you know, you or children of light now, you know, you've got to become that. You've got to become what you are. So, uh, as I said, this, con this crucial and uh, essential break with sin that took place at conversion must now be worked out in our lives. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. We've got to work this out. Justification and definitive sanctification have to lead to progressive sanctification. Uh, and to do so, we have to continually appropriate and put to work this new life that God has given us. And I've got a kind of a chart there showing again, union with Christ, we get justification and definitive sanctification. Regeneration, we're born again, and that gives us a new nature. And that means that we can produce holiness. Verse 12, therefore, <clears throat> he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Paul's command not to let sin reign, I say here, is matched by the promise at the end of this small unit of verses that sin shall no longer be your master. That's at the end, end 14 we'll get to. But here the command is don't let sin reign. Without this promise in verse 14, sin shall no longer be your master, Without that promise, which restates the main emphasis of verses 1 through 11, the promise in verse 14 is sin shall not be your master because in verses 1 to 11, you died to sin. The power of sin, with dominion of sin was broken. So without that promise, the imperative, the command, don't let sin reign would be futile. So it's it's really impossible to tell a Christian, an unbeliever, don't let sin reign. I'm not saying we should tell them to sin, but we can tell them not to sin, but they ultimately have no grace, no power to live a holy life that's not dominated by sinful desires ultimately. So the point is, you know, when you're talking to an unbeliever, you know, you compare it to a, a, a drowning person, you you might as well tell a drowning person to swim ashore as to tell an unsaved person to not let sin reign in their lives and so forth. Um, now, when Paul says that uh, you believers should not let sin reign, we shouldn't take that <clears throat> as necessarily a, a criticism, particularly of the Roman Christians, that they are somehow allowing it Paul is, I think, here uh, thinking not so much of a specific situation, but of uh, a person when they come to realize the truths of verses 1 through 11. Once you realize the truth that Paul has been teaching, that we have died to sin, the power of sin has been broken, we have a new nature, then uh, we need to reflect on this. We need to do something about it. 
all Christians have begun the process of dethroning sin. God does that in regeneration instantly and gives us a new nature. But none of us has finished the process of dethroning sin. So we all need to stop let sin reigning in our lives. I say, uh, so you see the chart there I've got that uh, I'm trying to illustrate a new nature, old nature, we might say new disposition, old, <clears throat> that as we progress in sanctification, the new nature is grows and strong and we feed that and we put to death the old nature. And uh, I'm talking here now about uh, Paul's statement here uh, where he says the bottle, body is mortal, therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And saying that the body is mortal, Paul is reminding us that though the body has been severed from its servitude to, servitude to sin, servitude to sin, verse 6, uh, it nevertheless, uh, it is nevertheless a body that still participates in the weakness, suffering, and mortality of this age. So until the body is redeemed and it puts on immortality, as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15, the body is still subject to the influences of this age. And the believer must not let those influences control us or hold sway in our lives. I say uh, uh, this mortal body that Paul says here is the believer's form of existence in this world, and thus it still has part in this age. Because of this, not because of anything inherent in the body, it has become the center of evil desires. The reigning of sin in our mortal bodies results in our obeying the desires of the mortal body. Verse 13, Paul says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. So I say here, Paul uses the imperatives of this verse, the commands, do not offer, but rather offer, to explain in more specific and practical terms the general command not to let sin reign in verse 12. Paul moves from the general you, verse 11, to the more definite yourself in verse 12, to the even more definite part here. Do not offer any part of yourselves. Um, now, we know that we have been brought from death to life, that the dominion of sin has been broken, and we've been given this new disposition, this new nature. Uh, we therefore have to constantly make it our business not to use our abilities and resources in the service of sin, Paul says. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin. As a general principle, I say we are to positively use our abilities and resources in the cause of righteousness. Offer every part of yourselves, Paul says, to him as an instrument of righteousness. Here, righteousness has a moral meaning, that is, behavior that's pleasing to God. Verse 14, <clears throat> for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. So after the imperatives of verses 11 through 13, the commands there, this paragraph concludes with a return to the indicative, the truth for sin shall no longer be your master, as it was in your unsaved condition. The future tense should be interpreted as a promise. Sin shall certainly not be your Lord, now or never. The promise is confirmed, that is because, by the assurance that we are not under the law, but under grace. And law here denotes the Mosaic law. Now, as we said in the introduction, most of the Christians in Rome were Gentiles, as far as we can tell from the book. The church, we said, probably started out of the synagogue, but then Jews were expelled from Rome 
in 49. And the church, from what we can tell, there's mostly Gentiles in the church. And these Gentiles never lived under the Mosaic law. And although they never lived under the Mosaic law in the sense of like Jews were you know, under the Mosaic law, the situation of the Jew under the Mosaic law is used here by Paul as representative of the situation and need of all people. Because there's a sense in which all of us, all unsaved, all people are under law. They're under moral law, God's moral law, uh, law written in the heart, as we saw in chapter two and so forth. Paul's going to talk more, more about this when we get to chapter seven and verse four, when he talks about we died to the law. I say here by the phrase under the law, Paul is simply using different language to characterize the old era or the old realm. In other words, you could have said in 614, sin shall not be your master because you're not under, you're not in the old era, the old era when you were unregenerate and unsaved. You're now in the new era of grace. Uh, and so uh, he could have used that, he, he could have used that language, but uh, he's using language, that, this language under the law to characterize the old era or the old realm. I say, thus Paul can make release from the law a reason for the Christian's freedom from the power of sin. For as he has repeatedly stated, the Mosaic law has a definite sin-producing and sin-intensifying function. It has brought knowledge of sin, and he said in 320. It's brought wrath. It's made sin a transgression, a crossing of a mark, an increase in the severity of sin. The law, as puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, is the power of sin. So this means there can't be any final liberation from the power of sin without a corresponding liberation from the power and lordship of the law, Paul is saying. So to be under the law, as Paul sees it, is to be under the, be subject to the constraining and sin-strengthening regime of the old era because in that old era, sin intensified, uh, it was, the law intensified sin. It brought wrath and transgression. So um, you, to, to be under the law is to be subject to con the constraining and sin-strengthening sin regime of that old era. But we're actually under grace now. You're under grace, and that's to be subject to this new era in which freedom from the power of sin is available. I say here, Israel before coming, before the coming of Christ was under law, bound to the law, in that it was the ruling authority of that dispensation. If you think about the old covenant, the Mosaic dispensation. The Mosaic era was the age in which sin dominated. How now that does not mean that there was no grace in the Mosaic era nor does it imply that all Israelites lived under the power of sin. That is, that no one was saved. No one experienced regeneration or sanctification. They did. Paul was well aware of the Old Testament remnant that included prophets and godly people, such as Abraham, Moses, Joseph, David, Daniel, and many, many more. What we have here is a generalization. Paul describes what was generally the case in the Old Testament economy not what was invariably the case. But an individual could escape the law's condemnation and power by faith in God who made promises to Abraham. The old covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, Israel was under the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. You were born an Israelite, circumcised the eighth day for males. You were automatically part of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. The old covenant did not come with an automatic provision of regeneration as does the new covenant. So let's talk about that a minute. <clears throat> so in the Old Testament, as we've said, people were saved the same way that we are saved. But in the old covenant, you know, if you were an Israelite, you were God's chosen people, uh, you had the Mosaic law, 
And of course, the problem with that was you naturally tend to think, well, we're God's people. We've got the Mosaic law. Therefore, we're going to heaven. Or we're right with God. And we see that displayed throughout the New Testament where Jesus is constantly trying to combat that idea that, you know, the Pharisees, others think that they're right with God simply because they have the law, they're Jews, they're God's people, they're descendants of Abraham. But under that Old Testament covenant, <clears throat> it didn't automatically, um, it didn't automatically mean that one was saved just because you were born an Israelite, males were circumcised the eighth day. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't, it didn't automatically mean you were going to heaven. I say here, salvation in all ages is based on the death of Christ by the instrument of faith. We read in 325, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So people like Abraham, who lived before Christ died, was saved based on the death of Christ. Christ died for Abraham's sins. And Abraham was saved by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So we said everybody is saved the same way, uh, based on the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the, as the propitiation for our sins and faith in God, faith. And so those people in the old covenant would be saved the same way if they're saved. But the old covenant was inherently defective. And so in Jeremiah, for instance, God promised to Israel a new covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the house with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt that Mosaic covenant that he gave on Mount Sinai because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Now that's really something. Now what we know that is, that's regeneration. That's being born again. Now people could be born again, in the Old Testament, but not necessarily. But everybody under the new covenant is born again. Everybody has God's law put in their hearts and minds. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness, remember their sin no more. So Paul says, <clears throat> I mean, Jesus says in the upper room, and we you know, use this verse in the communion service. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is, represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus instituted a new covenant. For this reason, Hebrews 9, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promise in eternal, eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And Paul says to the Corinthians, God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, not of the old Mosaic law, but of the spirit for the letter kills. It couldn't really do anything but condemn. It just made sin worse. It, showed sin to be a transgression. It intensified sin, but the spirit gives life. So what I'm saying here is that <clears throat> um, under the new covenant, which we're under, everyone under the new covenant is born again, receives new life, <clears throat> is dead to sin and uh, dead to the law. They're no longer under the Mosaic law. <clears throat> They have this new ability to please God and serve him. They have the spirit of God and so forth. So Paul says, sin's not gonna be our masters uh, because we're not under the law, but we're under grace. I say we must be careful to distinguish the Mosaic law from other powers of the old era 
in one important respect. Unlike sin, the flesh, and death, the law is not intrins an intrinsically negative force. In spite of its largely negative role in salvation history, it is God's law, and therefore Paul will say in chapter 7, it's good, it's holy, and it's spiritual. Being under the law, we might say, is uh, derivatively a negative experience, not intrinsically a negative one. In other words, the problem <clears throat> with the law is not the law, but with us. <laughs> with, uh, with depraved people, sinful people who are dominated by sin, the law can't do anything for them to save them or change them. Uh, you can read the Ten Commandments all day long, <clears throat> but it won't, it won't change you. It won't transform you. It won't give you, it won't break the dominion of sin. Only salvation through Christ can break that dominion of sin. I say, finally, we must understand the degree to which Paul here is thinking of the Mosaic law as a system or body. Therefore, although release from the commanding force of the Mosaic law is included in not being under the law, for this is Paul's usual force for the term law, we must be careful about drawing sweeping conclusions that would be, uh, conclusions that would be too sweeping. So for instance, notice 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 21. Paul says to the Jews, now Paul's talking about his evangelization, giving the gospel as he went out into the world and mixed with Jews and Gentiles. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. So Paul is saying, when I was out evangelizing Jews, I didn't violate the Mosaic law. I just didn't go around eating my ham sandwich. I love ham sandwiches, Paul says, but I didn't go around eating them among Jews because uh, I know that would be offensive to Jews and so forth. So I lived under the Mosaic law in order to win them. You know, I didn't violate that. Those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So Paul says, I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm a Jew, but I'm no longer under the Mosaic law as a system or system of uh, law and so forth, uh, system of governance. Uh, I became like I, I became like one of the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, that's like Gentiles, right? I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. So we are justified in considering the Christian to be free from the commandments of the Mosaic law insofar as they are part of that Mosaic system, the old covenant. Uh, perhaps in the sense that whatever commandments are applicable to us um, come with a new empowering through the grace of God. But we can't conclude from this verse, we're talking about Romans here, uh, we're under the law, that we have no obligation to commandments or law or the commands of God or so forth. So this gets a little tricky here. So what we're saying here is that Israel was placed under the Mosaic commandments, under the Mosaic law. And those law had, had a lot of commandments, 619 commands, positive commands in the law. And all kinds of commands about civil, moral, uh, civil, ceremonial, moral kinds of law. And uh, we're not under that system of law any longer. But we're under Christ's law, which is really God's eternal law. It's New Testament law. So in the Mosaic law, you know, you were forbidden for wearing clothing of two different types of material. We're not under that law anymore. Uh, there were laws about uh, how you constructed your house and so forth. We're not under those commands any longer, but God's moral law is eternal. So from the time of the Garden Eden, from the time of creation, it was immoral to murder someone. 
And that became part of the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill, which really means you shall not commit murder. And so that doesn't change. Murder was wrong before the giving of the law, during the giving of the law, and it's wrong in the New Testament law. So what we're saying, well, we're not under law, we're not under that mosaic legal system, those commandments. We're still under God's law, Christ's law, which is the moral law of God, which doesn't change. Uh, we have added to that New Testament commands that we're supposed to keep and so forth, which Paul calls Christ's law here. And I just mentioned an article, if you, if you just have nothing to do <clears throat> at night and you can't sleep, you could read that article and about the law and its relationship to Christians and you could, that could put you to sleep there. All right. So, um, death to sin through union with Christ, the power of sin has been broken. We've harped on it and harped on it, but it's such an important concept to know that we are able by God's grace to live a life that's pleasing to him. So it's not right to say, I just can't do it. I mean, it's, it's sometimes hard not to do it. <laughs> we can have, uh, when you have lived in sin for years and years and years and patterns of sin in your body, addictions and things like that, that can be very hard to break. There's no question. But ultimately there is power in the gospel, in the message, in, the, in Christ to live a life that's pleasing to God. Paul says, number two here, freed, we are freed from sin's dominion to serve righteousness. And he has a second question here. Remember the first question, shall we continue in sin? In verse one, so that grace may abound. Here's a second question. What then? Shall we sin because we are under the law? Excuse me, we're not under the law, but under grace. Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. In 6, 1 through 14, the dominant thought has been that of the believer's union with Christ in death to sin and newness of life. This union, Paul teaches, rules out a life of sin. In the present paragraph, the Christian life is considered in terms of service. That service, Paul shows, is an exclusive thing, demanding total commitment. So the gist of this entire section is that though the Christian is not under the Mosaic law, he's not free. She's not free to commit sin. The Christian comes under a new and higher obligation, what Paul sort of calls here slave service to righteousness and to God. So Paul says there's no such thing as a autonomous person. Now, most of our neighbors, most uh, unsaved people, pretty all unsaved people, and even some Christians tend to think that they're autonomous. That is, they ultimately decide, they ultimately have power to choose what they want to do. And they, uh, no one can tell them what to do. They're just, they have this exclusive power of free will and so forth. And, uh, Paul is saying here that uh, there is no such thing like that. Either a person is under the power of sin or he's under the power of God. A believer is under the power of sin or under the power of God. There's just two states here that Paul will explain. The question is, which, which, which one were we in and which master are we going to serve? One is either serving sin or one is serving God and Christ, and you know, one master is going to be served here, and he'll tell us that very plainly here. And we read that even before. I see here the question that introduces the discussion is stated in verse 15. What then shall we, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? I see here, Paul knew that the assertion of 14b, you're not under law, but under grace, was capable of being misused. And by this question, he anticipates the false conclusion that one might draw from it. He imagined an opponent saying, well then, since uh, the law, which commands us not to sin, no longer wills its authority over us, 
we therefore may sin with impunity, with, without any consequences. The question I say is much like in verse one, and as there, the inference here is immediately rejected by no means. But there's a difference. The motivations involved are different. Verse one, alluding to the truth of 520, verse one said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, draws the false inference that one should continue in sin so as to make grace abound the more. The present verse, alluding to the statement of verse 14b, draws the false inference that acts of sin no longer matter because of our new status under grace. In the former, that is the first part, one sins that grace may abound. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In the latter, this second question, one sins in hope of impunity. We're not under law. Shall we sin because we're, not, we're under grace? Hey, we can do what we want. Six one is a question of sinning to gain more grace. 6.15 is a question of sinning because of grace. Well, Paul explains this by an analogy of slavery. Do you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So the answer to Paul's question is explained in verses 16 through 23. In verse 16, Paul says that habitual obedience constitutes or leads to a condition of slavery. Christians who have been freed from the dominion of sin by their union with Christ must recognize that were they, were they, constantly to yield to the voice of temptation they would effectively become slaves of sin again. We were slaves of sin, but if we were now as Christians to constantly yield, if we were to just live a life of sin, we would become, in effect, slaves of sin. Uh, that Jesus makes the same point. Remember in John chapter 8, everyone who sins, he says, is a slave to sin. So, without taking anything away from what we've just said about this transfer from one master to another. We used to be slaves to sin. Now we're, we're under Christ, slaves to righteousness. Um, Paul wants it to make it clear that slavery is not just a legal status. It's not just that we were here and now we're here. Slavery is a living, ex uh, this, it's a living experience. Uh, Christians are no longer slaves to sins and they must live they must no longer live as slaves to sin. So we're not slaves to sins. The power of sin has been broken, but we must not, he says, live as slaves to sin. The last part of the verse, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death or obedience, which leads to righteousness, is designed to convince Christians of the seriousness of this practical obedience by making clear that two and only two options are open to every person and these options carry serious consequences. As I've said, either one is a slave to sin, or as Paul says here, you're a slave of obedience. So one is never really free from a master. But as I said, the common belief of non-Christians is that they are free. They're under the illusion uh, created and sustained by Satan. I mean, you can ask people sometimes and, and they'll say, well, I could, I could stop if I wanted to, you know, I could stop taking drugs if I wanted to, I could stop drinking if I wanted to, I could, you know, I could stop doing all these things if I wanted to, you know, if you, if you pointed something out that may be harmful or sinful, they'll, they'll sometimes say that I could stop, you know, they're under this illusion <clears throat> that sin is not their master, but that is an illusion created by Satan. Um, unbelievers think their will is free and they can just choose either to um, retain their freedom or give it up, you know, uh, and submit to God. In fact, you know, as we said, I keep saying all unbelievers ultimately serve sin. Instead of saying, I say here that the Christian is a slave to God, Paul says he's a slave to obedience. 
uh, which he highlights the significance of obedience in the Christian life in a context where such an emphasis is necessary to counter a false libertinism. Libertinism is I can live like I want to. I have liberty to do whatever I want to. That I'm free from all moral restraint and do as I please. So the freedom of the Christian that we're talking about here is not freedom to do what he or she wants, but freedom to obey God. Uh, you know, Christ makes us free, makes us free indeed. But this freedom is not libertinism. It's a freedom to obey God, to will, willingly obey God, to joyfully obey God, to, to naturally obey God. Um, that's the freedom we have when we talk about freedom in Christ. We are now free for the first time to obey God, which we couldn't before. I say to underscore further the seriousness of the choice between their, these masters, Paul specifies the consequences, that is, which leads to the consequences of the respective slaveries, death and righteousness. The word death may include reference to physical death and present spiritual death, but it means mainly, in this context, eternal death. So this slavery to sin, you know, if, if a person continues in sin, then it's going to lead ultimately to slavery and death. As he says, don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So that is the, the, the final and eternal exclusion from God's moral presence here when he says leads to death, physical death, spiritual death. That's the ultimate result of slavery to sin. Whereas if we are slaves to God, to obedience to God, that leads to righteousness, conduct that's pleasing to God. Verse 17, <clears throat> but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, there it is. There's the condition of believers. Thanks to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from the heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Paul makes it plain that believers have not been set free from sin to serve themselves. When we're saved, we make a decision to turn from sin, repentance, and serve faith a new master. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So Paul envisions all people on the earth as serving one of two masters. We used to be slaves to sin. That's, our, that's what we were in our unsaved condition. But when God regenerates us and gives us new life, he changes us, definitive sanctification. He gives us a new nature, a new desire, new willingness to obey him. We have now become slaves to righteousness. The basic inclination that we receive is to do right, to do the right thing. Now we fall short, certainly, but that's the basic inclination of a Christian. And so you wonder sometimes, that's why we wonder about the salvation experience of people who, who you meet who say, yeah, I was saved when I was 12 years old, but I haven't been to church. I don't really care about the Bible. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't care about those things, you know, but I'm going to heaven. I've met, <laughs> I've met many people like that who say, yeah, I was saved at a summer camp. I trusted Jesus. I'm going to heaven, but now I'm just going to live like I want to. I'll just live, you know, that's libertinism. But unfortunately, some people get a false, uh, false view of salvation. They have a false hope there that is very dangerous. But Paul says, you've been set free from sin and become slave to righteousness. Paul now restates the truth that the believer has been transferred from the old era to the new. Of course, this has been the central teaching of 6, 1 through 14. 
what Paul makes plain here was hinted at in verse 17. You used to be slave to sin. For the first time, however, Paul uses the language of freedom to describe the believer's new status with respect to sin. The word free is used by Paul mainly to indicate the Christian's freedom from the various powers of the old era, sin, the law, and death. Now, we live in a world which takes freedom, uh, it, it takes on all kinds of uh, historical you know, and social baggage. Uh, we have to remember that Paul's concept of freedom is not that of autonomous self-direction, that I'm free to do whatever I want to, as we've said. That's not what Paul means by free. We've been set free from sin. It's not that we are now set free to do whatever we like, and we have this autonomy, but it's deliverance from the enslaving powers that would prevent us from becoming what God intended us to be. I mean, it's only by knowing God and doing his will that we can be free indeed, as Jesus, remember, talked about in John 8. So this is why uh, this freedom is at the same time a kind of slavery. It's we're, we're bound to God, even though we're free, we're bound to God and his will in order to become free, free to be what God you know, wants us to be. Verse 19, I'm using an example from everyday life about slavery because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. The first sentence in verse 19 is an explanation of why Paul is using slavery imagery to depict the Christian. Human nature produces a weakness in understanding that can only be overcome in this life by the use of imperfect human analogies. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with comparing the Christian uh, experience with that of slavery, except that the Christian experience, uh, it, it could be misinterpreted if we talk about the Christian life as a life of slavery. It can ease, that could be easily be misinterpreted to mean that the Christian experience bar, uh, has the same marks of degradation, fear, and confinement that was typical of secular slavery. And of course, in our modern setting today, we, it really has a terrible sense of slavery. And so no one wants to say they're a slave today. That's just something you wouldn't want to say. Uh, but Paul is using the analogy of slavery here, but he doesn't mean the negative aspect of it. Now, the last part of uh, verse 19, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity, offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, is similar to what we had in verse 13, uh, except Paul uses, instead of commands, he uses a comparison, just as you used to offer yourselves to impurity, now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. So Paul's point is here, we should serve God with the same zeal that we used to serve sin. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time? From the things you are now ashamed of, those things result in death. Say so verse 20 and 21, give the reason for the command in verse 19 to offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. That reason can be found in their past lives before Christ. Non-Christians often experience, often pride themselves on possessing a freedom appropriate to autonomous human beings and disparage Christians for giving that up. And why would you want to be a Christian? You can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't do this, you can't do that. I'm free. I can do whatever I want to. That's the line of the unsaved person. So they disparage Christians for giving up this, what they think is freedom. By their obedience to God, Christians are often viewed as less than human. Well, Paul admits here that those apart from Christ have a certain freedom, but it's a freedom limited to one thing, freedom from the control of righteousness. 
when you were slaves of sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Uh, verse 21 continues uh, Paul's characterization here of the pre-Christian experience of his readers. The freedom they enjoyed in that unsaved condition produced fruit by which they are now shamed as Christians. Fruit that ultimately led would lead to eternal death, you know. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, there's the condition of all Christians. You've been set free from sin and become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. But now answers to the question at the beginning of verse 20. Paul contrasts his reader's present situation as believers with their pre-Christian experience. At the time of their conversion, the Roman Christians were transferred by God from the old era the, in the realm of sin to the new era in the realm of God. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul concludes here for, let me conclude, Paul says what I'm saying, by contrasting the outcomes of death mentioned in verse 21 and life in verse 22. The eternal death that those under the power of sin experience is described as wages. The word is often used of pay you know, given to soldiers, wages. So sin merits death. Sin which merits death is contrasted here to eternal life, which Paul says is a free gift. And so here's a verse that many of us memorize. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, as we're maybe trying to explain the gospel to those who do not know Christ. Well, <clears throat> I think we will uh, stop here tonight.